Cool. Right. Right, guys, it's Blackman the Traveller. I hope everyone's okay. And uh, I've got a special guest. Me, I don't really introduce my guest, but I'm going to let him speak for himself. But... Hi, my name is Sheldon Thomas, and I'm really privileged to be here amongst the younger brothers doing their thing. Um, so, yeah, I'm here. Thank you very much for actually um, coming down. Mm. I really appreciate it. I've seen some of your work and um, you're very inspiring, you know. Uh, Mr. Sheldon, tell me about yourself. Um, where, where are you originally from? Well, my parents are originally from Jamaica. Yeah. Um, and um, they came here in the 50s. Um, and in my opinion and my academic framework, um, I believe that they were manipulated to come into this country. Yeah. And I think many Caribbeans and Africans were manipulated too um, into coming to England after World War II. Because after World War II, many of the white folks didn't want to do any of the real dirty work in rebuilding um, the UK in terms of the train line, the NHS and all of that. So they came up with this kind of plan of bringing um, black people from the Commonwealth Okay, some African countries and Caribbean, but mainly Caribbean countries. And um, I feel that while England was pretending to give independence to these countries, yeah, in the other way, they were economically suppressing it so that you had to leave those countries because you believed that um, those countries didn't have much to offer in terms of jobs and prospects and infrastructure. So it made, in my opinion, believe, made West Indians or Caribbeans believe by coming to England, they're saving you, they're helping you. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of Caribbean parents of the 50s believe that story. They believe that England was the motherland. Mm. And I think, um, as, as we'll talk more, you'll begin to realise that that was our downfall in believing something that wasn't really true because we weren't educated enough to understand what the West was doing to our country, what the British Empire was doing to the Caribbean by undermining us economically. And um, so while while you was going through that in England, would you say, um, how would you describe your, your childhood as growing up in the UK? My childhood was a war. Okay. And a lot of people don't understand, will not understand that concept because they'd be like, well, what war? Being a black man mm. living in the 60s and 70s, we're living like our gang members today are living in the sense of can't go to this part, can't do here, can't go here. If uh, Trying to navigate themselves away, how to get to school. Some are taking taxis because they can't go into a certain area. That's what it was like being a black person living in England. We didn't know if we was going to get to the end of our street if we were gonna be beaten up by a police officer for just being black, insulted. I know some of the words I'm gonna say now may offend people. No, no, you can, you people, can, it's freedom of speech. But you need to know the words that were said to 10 year old young black kids by big police officers in the 1970s. Words like gollywog, jungle bunny, coon, sambo, go back and swing in the trees. Go Those back and swing in the trees. trees. Those are the words that were said to black kids in the 70s and the 80s, consistently, not only verbally abused, we were physically attacked 
every single day. There wasn't a day where I never got a punch in the face. So for instance, when people talk about stop and search today, mm. I laugh because the stop and search you get today, that's easy. The stop and search we got was a punch in the face. And then on top of the punch in the face, he's telling you, punch me, you black bastard, punch me, go and punch me. So we lived under a constant siege. And I, I always say to people, I likened our lifestyle of living in England, London, whether it be Birmingham or Liverpool or mm. those kind of concentrated black areas, I likened it to Soweto. We were under siege. We were under attack every day. And I don't think people understand when I keep saying to people that, how long do you think it would be before you become a gang member to defend yeah. yourself against these people. People think that we woke up one day and said, oh, I want to sell drugs and I want to, hell no. Mm. We, we, we had no choice because when we came home, our parents weren't supporting us. Our parents didn't show us any love. We, I can't even remember the last time my dad ever even told me he loved me. I can't even remember that. Wow. I, I can't even remember the time my dad even put his arm around me. Yeah. I can't even remember those times. And people don't understand that if you're going home to a house where your parents are attacking you because they think you're a troublemaker and you go out on the road and you've been attacked by police officers and the National Front, I think it'd be not long before you end up doing something that you ain't going to want to do. It all comes down to, it all comes down to the trauma that you're suffering outside from the house, you know, to be able to grow up in, in England, as they call it, Great Britain. And then you're suffering racism. You're getting beaten by the people that are meant to protect and serve you, you know? And um, I think... Going through that mentally and physically, it changes your mindset. Definitely. As a person. And I mean, I for me, I woke up, I'm going to be quite honest with you. I woke up every day f trying to figure out which white man I'm going to kill. Because that's what I wanted to do. Because I had no voice. Remember, I've got no voice at home. Yeah. To say, it's not like I can let off steam. Yeah. No voice at home. My brethren are as angry as I am. So we're all angry. And that's our life. Our life was every day. Like, which white man we're going to kill, bro? Like, we're, we're gonna, you know, and that's how, that's how it was for us. We was like, it was either kill or be killed. Can I ask you a question? So when, when the police were stopping searching you and when they were using these offensive words towards you and then they hit you, didn't, did, have you ever experienced a police officer that had a bit of, you know, humanity in within them to say look mate what you're doing is wrong or was there ever a time where a police officer realized that this is getting out of hand you can't be you know attacking these these you know these fellow black people before 1978 yeah, yeah. there was a police officer called pc white it was on the angel town yeah. estate he was the only police officer i have ever known who had decency respected us now, PC White was there for many years. And then one day, around 1980, he said, oh, I'm being transferred. Personally speaking, that was the one officer that I believed really made a significant difference. And I think if he had stayed on the Angel Town estate, many of us would never have become 
what we became because he was a nice guy and we respected him. We didn't even see him as a white man like that. We did. We just saw him as a guy that came on the estate. Yeah. And in them days, they, they, they did a lot of walking. Police officers weren't in cars. They would did a lot of walking on the beat. They called them on the beat. Officers. So they were patrolling the neighborhoods. Yeah. By foot. And it wasn't done in the way they do it now that it wasn't done as in patrolling, looking for us to be arrested. Yeah. It was just their job. That was their neighborhood. And they would walk around their state. But the, thing is all the bad man them all the sand man all respected him they liked him mm. they had conversation with him when he left in 1980 all hell broke loose it was never the same so the police officers that started to come into Brixton would terrorize us on a daily basis so when you ask the question did I meet an officer that was nice I would say before that one officer was that person. But if it's like a, uh, um, it was difficult for us to, f f we were so angry. Okay, to be that's the best way to put it. We were so angry, I don't think we wanted to see the best in anyone. Wow. Because you've got to understand. Yeah. If at nine years old, a police officer, for this is the first time I heard the word gollywog, yeah? It was 1974. If from 1974, you're constantly abused, I don't think you're going to try to find the best in anybody. Mm. So to answer your question, that was the one officer that I think was a good officer. But if I'm to be honest with you, I never since that time, I don't think we met any officers or anybody that we could even consider because at that time um the, the country were trying were using and were using us they were using us to build their country up yeah and because our parents were so passive and weak most of us had no direction so we were angry and violent so it wasn't hard for the jamaican drug gangs to actually align with us because they just used that vulnerability against us because they knew the words to use. Yeah. They would say to us, oh, the white men are like you. So they will speak, but they will use that, you know, they'll, they'll take advantage in terms yeah. of what's happening in the situation. They, because they knew they couldn't sell the drugs on their own because there wasn't enough of them. Of course. It's not their country. So they had to recruit. They had to recruit. But, they used a way of recruiting us that made many of us join them, like the Bournemouth gang and like TMD and all their man there, was they used racism. They said, the white man don't like you. Your mum don't like you. Bruv, we like you. Might as well be part of us. There you are. And so for us, what was a social response, us fighting police officers and the National Front, then became a criminal response because we started to deal drugs. And that was our downfall because then we self-destructed. So how did, okay, so for example, okay, so you, so now for me speaking towards you, so you grew up in Brixton, as I can. I grew up in Brixton, but I wasn't from Brixton. Okay. I was from Clapham. From Clapham, okay. Yeah. So still South London. Yeah. So while, so while you're growing up, so you're facing police brutality. Yeah. You're facing racism. Yeah. You're facing stop and search where it's meant to be actually stop and not physically yeah. search. Yeah. So there's already uh, rules and regulations were already broken by the government. Yes, right. 
I presume that there was a lot of complaints within the, you know, motoculture community of, no, uh, you know. We never complained because we knew we wasn't going to get anywhere. Okay. The problem with us, and this is a downfall for us, for the black community. Yeah. We didn't officially complain because we felt that every time we complained, we would end up getting nicked. So for instance, I remember a couple of the man them who got beaten up by some police officers, um, they were drove, they were kidnapped by some police officers, driven 50 miles, dumped out, big complaint happened, and they ended up in Ballstorm. So for speaking the truth, yeah, they got we, put in prison? They got, well, it wasn't prison, it was called Ballstorm. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's what you call YOI now, yeah. Youth and Offending Institutes, yeah. which are prisons for young teenagers. It was called Ballstorm. That, that, none of that, what you got prison now, never existed. So it's called Ballstorm. So I think many of the guys realised that we were losing in court, we were losing when we complain. So the one thing we should do is form a gang to defend ourselves. So that's the reason why the Jamaicans found it easy because the gangs were already there, yeah. but it weren't there for drug dealing. It was there to fight the police officers or defend ourselves against racist police. But, so so it's cut off. So when yeah. the gangs were formed, would you say there was uh, a unity within? Yes, 100% because every gang was linked to a sound system. Okay. Okay. So today you, not today, back in the seventies, England had a problem with football hooliganism. Yeah. And the football hooligans were each linked to a football team. So for instance, you would have the Arsenal football hooligan element was called the Gooners. The Chelsea football hooligan element was called the Chelsea Headhunters. West Ham had the intercity firm. Millwall had the bushwhackers and so forth. So every football team had a football hooligan. It's the same with the sound systems. The sound systems from each area had a, what we would call gunman. So we would call bad man. Yeah. So, but that bad man would be part of a gang, but that gang is linked to music. So when you, when you had a dance, so if, if Sam from Brixton was playing, so small acts, Small acts would have certain man them in the dance that if anything happened, yeah. they pull out their gun. You understand? So um, the sound system had links to these gangs, but the gangs were very much about fighting police officers. Okay. But it changed. Yes. In 1982, after we burnt Brixton down, because we burnt Brixton down as a resentment to the way we were treated by yeah. police officers. I have um, I have a specific question about that one. Um, what is your opinion on how black people are treated by the police uh, today compared to the 80s? I think you, you guys are treated brilliantly. Yeah. I know a lot of people don't like the sound of that, but that's the truth. Yeah. Number one, I know police officers racially profiled. That's been going on for like 70 years. Yeah. But the difference between my days and your days is we were beaten up. You're not. Now, some people would just not like that. They'd be like, well, they shouldn't stop. I agree. Of course, they shouldn't stop you without proof of anything. But at the same time, you're not called a name. You're not being violated in the sense of being beaten up. You're not being put in the back of a meat wagon. We called it meat wagon back then, right? And driven 50 miles and dumped out. You're, you're, you're still treated 50 times better than we ever were. So when I hear people talk about stop and search, yes, it's wrong to racially profile young black boys. Of course it's wrong. But at the same time, when you compare your time to ours, it's completely different. I am sorry. You've got nothing to complain about. I would, st I would like a man, 
I would like to have been born today where a policeman stopped me 10, 15 times. Because in my time, 10, 15 times is 10, 15 punches. 10, 15 batten hits of your head. People don't understand how the police brutality yeah. of black men yeah. in the 70s made us not leave a legacy. We, we, we've done nothing. So, we, that, so to cut off, that must have caused like the trauma, you know, what's, what you're going 100%. through as a human. And then obviously when you're going through certain elements, you're, you're meant to be safe when, you, when you're leaving your house. Yeah. And then when you're getting stopped by a police officer and getting punched and getting called certain racial, racial slurs, that's going to, you know, it's going to change your mindset as a young kid or as an older man or as a teenager. And then that's going to cause you to start to rebel. And that's going to start to bring, you know, anger within, you know, against another person of colour. So growing up in the 80s, would you say, um, would you say growing up in the 80s was one of the hard times within the black community? In England? 70s and 80s was the hardest time ever. Yeah. Being black. I would say 60s as well. Um, but I would blame my parents for the 60s because they didn't defend themselves. Yeah. So I would say in terms of defending ourselves and what we had to go through every single day, I would say 70s and 80s by far was the worst for any black man in the UK. Any. And it's not, it's not, it's not exclusive to me or anyone in Brixton. It's wherever, Toxteth, Mossside, um, um, Answorth, Every black area in all over the UK, all over the UK, black man was under siege. Why would you say that? Would you would, would you think the the police has had something against us, or would you just say, look, they made it clear that they didn't like us. Yeah, um, the system made it clear they didn't like us. The hurtful thing about this wasn't the fact that the system didn't like us or the police, was that we didn't get the love at home. See, people don't understand the concept of that. When you're in no man's land, you're a nomad. Once you're a nomad, that means you're open to anything that can happen because you're all over the place. Yeah. So for me, I think the biggest problem, and obviously I didn't learn that at the time, because at the time I was ignorant, I was arrogant and I was a violent fuck. No doubt about that. Yeah. I'm not going to lie about that. Yeah. But I think it was made worse because going home, my mum and dad constantly blamed us and never once understood what we were going through. I think I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be here to defend people's parents. I think that comes down to lack of education at the 100%. same time. Because obviously when, um, when when immigrants come over to the UK, the first thing that they have this inception is the UK is beautiful. The yes. UK is this, the UK is that. Yeah. But they don't understand that there's a lot of stuff happening within the UK that doesn't go exposed to the outside That's world. Right. So when you're a person of colour and you're migrating over to the UK, you're already being trapped in a system now. Yeah. So you're going to be educated in a certain way. You have to speak in a certain way. You can't dress. You have to dress in a certain yeah. way. So when we have, let's say, for example, black people, parents coming over to the UK, they don't know what to expect. All they know is a white man mentality. So when you have a child growing up in a, let's just say in a multicultural country at that at that time, and then so while you're growing up and then you're facing police brutality, you're facing racism, stop and search, getting beaten up, and you're going back home, 
and then you're saying to your parents, look, mum and dad, this is, this is what's happening to me. Your mum and dad are thinking, no, this is wrong. You're the cause of the problem. You're the reason why you're getting beaten up. You're the reason why the police are stopping searching. Mm. But at the same time, they're not experiencing what you're going through. I do agree. and But the, 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 the point I have, problem I have with that yeah. is that you're right about the education yeah. because I'm, I'm very fortunate that in my gang life, uh, many of my friends were shot dead. Okay, so like nine of them were shot dead. Sorry to hear that. Right, and um, well, I'm not sure about sorry. We we caused a lot of the problems. I'm not going to try and sit here and try and defend. Yeah. We we were so angry that we caused our own downfall. You, you, and so because of the anger, we did things that we should just we shouldn't have done. We shouldn't have stopped fighting the police officers. We started selling drugs. We shouldn't have sold drugs. We shouldn't have done that. But because you're not, you're angry, mm. you can't see straight. Remember, we're, 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 I've, we're, we've got tunnel vision. We ain't, we're not like you. You're a black man, the traveler. Mm. You've been more places than I have. Yeah. How's that possible? Because I should have gone more places than you. I'm, I'm nearly 60. Yeah. But because I was so ignorant and so tunnel, like so angry, I couldn't see outside of Brixton. Do you understand? Yeah. So you've come along and shown, well, actually, you're not going to allow racism to dictate where you're going. Mm. Do you understand? Mm. Black man, the traveler, right? Yeah. But I would, I did. Yeah. I allowed racism to make me so angry that I turned against my own people. But the problem is, I think you've experienced stuff, but then it's like, it's, it's made the man who you are now, if that makes oh, sense. Oh yeah, yeah, 100%. So I know, I'm not trying to like justify and glorify what you've done. You had to do what you had to do. Mm. But at the same time, at that era, there was no leadership, there's no guidance. Mm. And a lot of things start from home, whether you like it or not. Yeah. It all comes down to parenting. So if the parent is not going to defend the child or be there for the child, that child is going to have a different mindset. And then already, they're not getting love and support from home. So they're going to turn into the streets. And once you turn into the streets, that's when you start to, you know, you, you lose yourself. You start to go AWOL. Yeah, 100%. And that's why I was saying that... <sighs> The 80s was a difficult time period because we moved from fighting the police to selling drugs. And I think looking back now, that was the biggest downfall because we began to kill each other. And what was the cause of that, do you think? Money. We wanted to take over the drugs straight from the Jamaicans. Um, anger, because we was angry of the way we're being treated as black people. And we began to see other blacks like we saw whites. What age did you join the gang? I, I actually started my gang okay. when I was 11. Okay. Because on the way to school, on one of the incidents, police car pulled up, threw an egg at me. Threw an egg? Yeah. On, at, uh, I was on, in my school uniform, yeah. threw an egg. I looked back, he come out the car, took his truncheon out, and said, come on then, you know, come on you little blackie, come on. So hold up, you're going to school, yeah. you're a minor, minding your own business, Girl, yeah. just trying to get your education done. Mm. And a, 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 a member of the public service yeah. is meant to protect and serve, yeah. jumped out of his car, provoked the situation, chucked yeah. the egg at you and pulls out a weapon to yeah. hurt you. Pulled out a truncheon, he was gonna beat me with a truncheon. At the age I of was, 11 you said? I was 11, I was wetting myself. 
I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and try and pretend like I was some Don. I was wetting. He looked enormous. He didn't look like a small little son. Enormous. And that's when I realised I can't take it no more because my mum's not interested. Mm. My dad's, I don't even know what world he was in. So I decided I'm going to form a gang. So I went into school and that's when I sat down with them man there and said, listen, we can't keep getting beaten up like this. We've got to do something. Things have to change. So I started a gang, I would say about 12 years old. Now, it's not the gang that you would recognise today. It started in school with the sound systems, yeah? But what happened was we then agreed that from now on we don't walk streets on our own. So in a way, it's kind of like a gang, but it was a, a defense gang. So if you remember back in the days of the Black Panther movement yeah. in the 70s, it was kind of like that where it wasn't a gang to sell drugs or yeah. be a bad man. It was more of a gang to defend, defend. ourselves from racism, yeah. racist police officers and the National Front. And it began to work because what happened was there was an incident that happened in Clapham Common there was a fun fair. This was 1979, maybe 1980. And we was in the fun fair. There's about seven of us. We were about, so 1979, I was about 14, maybe 13, 14. And police swarmed the fun fair. We don't know why. It, we don't know what happened. They swarmed it and they came straight over to us and started saying to us, what we're doing here. So obviously one of us got cocky and said, what, what are you talking about? We're in a fun it's fair. It's a fun fair. Yeah. What we're, is he we're, meant to be we're, doing? We're in a fun fair. Yeah. We didn't speak English. We spoke Jamaican Patois. Okay. So he turned around and said, you bloody black bastard, speak English, you black C-U-N-T. Bloody hell. Right? So... We're near, in them days, they didn't have what you got guys got today. It was really basic stuff. So they had these fruit machines. Yeah. These old school fruit machines that you pull with yeah. a big bar and okay. that thing. Yeah. So on the, the, the machine were some bottles. Yeah. So Coke bottles, because in them days, there wasn't plastic like that. It it's was glass. Coke okay. bottles with yeah, glass. So... My, one, I think my brethren picked up the the, the, the the bottle and smashed it in the policeman's face. Oh. Right? Um, and I think all hell broke loose from then, you yeah. know. Um, we got beaten up because we're kids. We're not yeah. big men. Yeah. And they had truncheons. Remember, we didn't have weapons. We just had what was there at the fun fair, which was a few bottles. So a fight took place. And even though we got a battering we realized for the first time the police were scared because we were all fighting them. It wasn't like it was before where they would pick you off on your own. Yeah. So that's when I began to feel raw. We're in power. Where we got a little yeah. power thing Understanding going on. Understanding our yeah. grand as well. Yeah. yeah. So from then it became so much easier. So we would do things like, so for instance, police officer would drive slowly next to you. Yeah. yeah? And so we'd be talking. So, all right, so... What we'll do, we'll keep walking. Yeah. We'll find a brick and we'll bust the car window and run. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing in those days we had yeah. was we always had a saying, white man can't run. Yeah. Yeah. Because in them days, we knew white man can't run. 
yeah? So it was easier for us to smash their car window and run off, yeah? Um, I remember one time we fell off, one of us fell over, policeman caught him. We went back and stamped in the policeman's head and run off again. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we did a lot of things yeah. as a group. That's when we began to get empowered. We began to realize if we stick together and that's what other gangs began to do in their areas. It started to wake up. People began to realize if we go as a group, yeah. we can defend ourselves against the national front. Yeah. You understand? Then we kind of acted crazy and started going looking for the national front. So um, the national front were in East London, right? Where, where, in, in, so uh, whereabouts? they will be in Canning Town. Okay. Um, they would be in Woolwich, okay. Heltham, um, Barking and Dagenham, um, West Ham. Those areas were where the National Front were. Yeah. So because we began to get brave now, we would go looking for the National Front. So we went to a um, pub in Lewisham. Now, this pub, we had found out, is a National Front pub. Yeah. Now, everybody thought National um, Lewisham was a black area. Yeah. It was. But because the National Front had a strong presence across the country, yeah. even though you might be a black age, there will be a pub who will be a National Front, Front. pub. Yeah. So we decided to go into the pub, and obviously kids are not allowed. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. Right? So we would go into the pub deliberately to start a fight. So we were learning now tactics of how to deal with the white man, right? So, and, and a lot of it, we began to watch what was going on in South Africa. Because what happened was, whilst we were doing this, we began to get ourselves educated because of what happened with Roots. And because we began to get educated, we began to watch what was going on in South Africa, and we began to realize that they did a lot of the, their version of our, our gang was called Unkunta with Sizeway. Mm. So Unkunta with Sizeway was their militant arm of the ANC. They're the ones that would bomb white areas. They're the ones that would fight. And so we wanted to be known. So we called ourselves the Black Mariah. Black Mariah. Yeah, because we wanted to be known as the militant arm of any political black political movement now we're only kids we're not big men we're just finding our feet so it's very raw and it's very much about yeah let's go down here and do this and it's it's not like Uncontra with size was much more organized the yeah. ANC were far more organized but we we were copying their tactics because it was working you scared a lot of white people. And what we began to realize is that we lost that when we got involved with the Jamaicans. You think the Jamaicans broke the unity within, yes. within, within the community and yeah. then just changed the whole changed the whole game? The whole trajectory changed. We had Peckham versus Brixton. Yeah. Um, Tottenham versus Hackney. It all changed. Now, do you think... It's changed in terms of. Do you think? Uh, do you think it's changed for the best or for the bad? In terms of, okay, there was unity, but everyone knows that unity does not last for long in whatever in whatever situation happens. Now, because it's changed, do you think now the generation has actually suffered from you know the separation of the Tottenham and them, the Brixton, yeah, the Peckham, hundred percent, because now it's fragmented into estates, yeah, within 
one area, whereas Hackney was one area. Yeah. You wouldn't find Hackney fighting Hackney. Yeah. Now you've got Hackney fighting Hackney. One road, that's right, right, 10 one minutes road. down yeah, the road. 10 minutes down the road. Yeah. Same thing in Brixton, same in Lewisham, same everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. So for me, <clears throat> I do believe that the drugs that the crime families brought into the country, the white crime families, we need to be clear about that. Mm. And the Jamaicans on mainland Britain, distributing the drugs and using first generation black kids to do so was our downfall because it moved us away from the social cause of fighting the national front of making our mark politically like the black panthers it moved us away from that trajectory we now became gangs that looked at other gang members who were the same as us as the enemy and that's where I think it fell apart. And and I would say the same thing happened in the Asian community. Maybe not to the same degree, yeah. because the Asians, it was mainly Pakistani gang members, really. It wasn't, you really, it's only lately you've got Sikhs, a little bit of Hindu, and some of the Bangladeshi. It was mainly Pakistani and Bangladeshi gang members, really, to be honest. All the other ones, the Tamils and all of them, came later. And I think... For us, the biggest downfall was us getting involved in the drugs trade. Would you say it's a gang? Would you say it's a family? It's a gang. There's no doubt. Because you can't be a family unless it's biological. Okay. And this con idea, when I get, and this is what the Jamaicans did, and this is what the, your generation do, does now. Like, yo fam, like, you'd be one of us, like, yo, yo fam, your family. That's a mm. lie. Mm. Because, um, as a, a a family, um, the, the, the concept of family is from a biological standpoint. Yes. And when you start talking about a friend who is now saying, I'm your family, that's actually a lie. Yeah. You understand? And what that person's doing, which is what the street gangs do today, is they use psychology on children. Yeah. And because they use psychology, they got that from the Jamaicans because the Jamaicans did it to us. So they're using tactics to mislead yeah, people. That's right. And so I think this old concept about family is just built on a lie. Yeah. Okay. That's that's that's, that's very interesting. Would you say? Um, would, do you think the music provoke uh, gang culture in terms of the lyrics? One hundred percent. We was one of the first artists to be signed to a major recording label long before. Storms didn't even, them and they weren't even born. Yeah. We were signed to a recording label called Jive. Okay. Right? Back in 85. So I'm talking decades. And when we got signed, the first thing they wanted us to do was talk about what we did on the road. And many of us, see, my generation, we didn't believe that you should promote what you did on the road. Yeah. Whereas today's generation... They love it. It sells. It sells. You know, sells. NWA came out. You know, um, there's a guy called Schoolie D. Schoolie D was the first gangster rapper. I know people like to believe NWA was, but they yeah. weren't. Schoolie D was the first gangster rapper from Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia had a gang called the Parkside Niggers, right? Um, sorry that I'm using the words, but That's this okay. is what the name of the gang right. was called. Yeah. And they were the very first album dropped where it talked about killing people and i know people look at nwa because nwa sold more 
Um, but it was Schooly D that brought that gangster lifestyle. Then there was another guy called Ice T. Ice-T was really the major guy that switched it. He brought that gangster lifestyle to life. Yeah. Then there was another guy called King T. Okay, they brought that gangster life to to, 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 to life. And then it was NWA. But NWA kind of brought it to a level of the national prominence. So it made people believe it was NWA. Yeah. And in the reggae music industry, we never, we, we called it gunman lyrics. So the recording label wanted us to do that, the gunman, and we didn't want to do that. So when people talk, ask me a question about, do I believe music um, plays a part in the glamorization of street gangs? Yes, it does. There is no doubt about that. I know there's some of some guys out there who keep saying, no, it isn't. But what they don't understand is that we fought two for nail to get signed to recording labels. Mm. We didn't get the deals that you guys get now, you know, the millions and that kind of stuff. But back in our days, getting 50 grand was considered a million pounds yeah, to us. It was enough. Yeah, I understand. So we fought two for now to get recording deals. And what we believe is happening today is that you, not, your gen, not you personally, but your generation is ruining that because what happens is when you scare white people, mm. they lock you down. That's true. Once they, you speak up, what, they see you as a threat. They lock you down. Yeah. And and if they don't lock you down, they then will own the recording label and push out more negatives. So if you look at Interscope, Warner Brothers, the money they've made from gangster rap, you wouldn't believe it, but it's all white-owned label. They're mm. not black-owned label. Yeah. So what the white people do is, if they can't stop it, they will own it, but they will make the money and you won't make the money. So when I say to people, even though I don't agree with gangster rap, mm. you don't even own, you don't even make the money from it. You make a million and your recording label makes 10 million. So, no, yeah. yeah. yeah so, you know, your recording label makes 10 million. So I'm like, how did we get into a position where you're talking about things in the black neighborhood but the person making the money is from a white neighborhood. Yeah. So when I say about uh, that is, is gangster rap promoting it, I would say yes. But the sad part about the promotion is we're not making the money from it. Would you, do you, okay. Do you think black people need to unify in terms of business? Like we need to have black owned businesses and we need to not only unify, we have to, I think black people, need to try to get along before we own a business. That's, that's powerful what you said. Because when I was growing up, yeah. we had a dislike for Africans because we were conditioned by the white man to believe that Africans were second class because their country weren't built up. So the way you were trained, basically the way you were educated, yeah. they misled you. Yeah. No, they lied. It's yeah. a basic lie. Yeah. But what happened was when Roots came out in yeah. 77, yeah. that's when we began to realize about the lies and we began to look at Africa as the motherland. See, what happened was up until then, we didn't look at Africa as the motherland. It was when we saw Roots and that divided every school in England. There was not a school that didn't get divided. Immediately, every black person who went to school, that's it. 
We ain't talking to no white man again. Mm. You're not in the football team. It's a black team. And so that made us realise that we need to be together. Yeah. Unity. We were more unified then than we are now. And that's the sad part. So we can't get business up and running if we're not actually communicating without business. What made you want to become a gang activist? Basically, my friends during that 10 year, me being a gang leader, yeah. were shot dead. Um, I was in a dance in East London. And in them days, when a gang was going to look for you, it would be in a dance hall. You, you call it trap and drill music. Yeah. We call it dance hall. So they would know where to find you. So obviously Brixton had a reputation and anybody from Brixton, people would try to test them. So four guys came in a club in East London, in Balaclavas. As they were entering the club, they started shooting up the place and about three or four people got shot. Then they started to come towards me. Mm. And as they came towards me, they started shooting their guns. Obviously I froze. Mm. But the guy next to me, he got his head blown off. And so the guy, brain matter, came on me. So you, you know when you can feel bits of pieces yeah, of flesh, flesh yeah. hit your face? Yeah. I froze. I was completely, like, didn't know what to, I thought I was going to dead. Mm. So when they shot the guy, and he was, because he was right next to me in the dance, they must have run out and whatever. And that was the very first time I'd seen a murder close up. Most of the times I'd either come after the incident or in case of my friends, when somebody rang and said, oh, yo, your brethren get shoot or whatever. And that's when I decided to leave the lifestyle. And so I met up with a man called Bernie Grant and Diane Abbott. Bernie Grant and Diane Abbott were the first black MPs at that time. Big, big them up. Yeah. So Bernie Grant and Diane Abbott, I went to see Bernie Grant and Bernie Grant and Diane Abbott took me to America to um, form a, a, an org, a political organization called the Black Caucus. They're still around now. And Jesse Jackson was one of the major players. Okay. So they then introduced me to Jesse Jackson and it was through Jesse Jackson that I began to realize that my problem wasn't racism, mm. but my problem was my parents. Because what happened, Jesse Jackson was explaining to me that he had seen lynchings and he never became a gang member. He grew up, like one day he said, he, as a child, he looked out of his window and there was a black man hanging from a tree. And he says to me, have you ever seen a black man hang from a tree? I said, no. So he said, well, I didn't become a gang member. Mm. You did. Mm. based on words. Because what he'd done, he began to analyse words. He said to me, okay, they're called your gollywog, and what? Because in his head, mm. a lynching is far more worse than being called a gollywog. So in his head, he's like, you allowed words to determine your future and to determine that you're going to be a bad man. Mm. But he said, he watched lynchings and murders by white supremacists. And what it done for him, it became, he became a preacher. So he was saying to me, as black people, we've got to figure out a way 
of not allowing racism to determine to determine your future but concentrate on how you're going to be a good parent mm. because what he was saying was my mum and dad were not good parents mm. and that's your that's the resentment but you don't know that because you're a child isn't it? you yeah. ain't going to know no. these things you're not brainy you're not that bright not until you grow up and you start yeah. to realise and so when he told me that I was 21 and I was like rah I didn't know my problem was Obviously, I did know because deep down, I was resenting them every single day of my life. I resented my mum and dad every day. I, I, I really did. And some days I wanted to hurt them. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because when you have children and you can't tell them you love them, I, I think that's detrimental. Uh, and I think sometimes us men, we think we don't need to hear that. We do. I, I did. I'm going to speak for myself. And I think most of my friends, we wanted that. We wanted a dad we could sit and reason with. We come home, we couldn't even reason with our dad. You, you couldn't even have a conversation with him without him attacking you, without him trying to tell you that you're rubbish. And it, it, I just wanted a comfort. And Jesse Jackson was spot on. Would you think um, fathers play a, a a key role in terms of people, um, like for example, would you say that there's a lot of gang members because they come from broken families mm. in terms of the families are not there, in terms of like the father's not there to support them. Mm. Would you would you say that's a, that's a fact? Yeah, I would say the biggest problem we have isn't poverty, isn't racism. I think the biggest problem we have as black people are absent fathers. I'm sorry, I, I, I do. I, I, I have seen what rejection does. It, because... If you've got the love in your home, I guarantee you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't join a gang. Yeah. Because you, you wouldn't need to feel, because you feel like, you feel like a part of your family. You feel like, rah, when I go home, my mum's got my yeah, back. Yeah. My mum's down, like you got that love. You, you got, you, you have that unity that yeah, you don't have outside. You go home, you can reason with your mum. You can sit down and say, yeah, mum, we're into school and oh, I had a bad day. And, mm. But when you grow up like us in the seventies, you couldn't go home and tell your mum you had a bad day. Your mum said, well, they rotted your top boat. Mm. You know, she, 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 the, the, the concept of just even being able to talk to your mum was just out of this world. It's like, that would never happen. So for me, when people ask me about what's the biggest problem for the black community, I, I never say it's racism. Mm. Because racism is what, if you look at Jesse Jackson, he didn't allow racism to stop him. Mm. Did did Barack Obama allow racism to stop no, him? No. So, like, what what are we talking about? Racism can only stop you if you stop yourself. Yeah. And the biggest problem was I stopped myself because I I allowed racism to dictate to me that I'm going to be a horrible person. You're going to hate white people. You're going to kill white people. And mm. all the while, you, who who suffered? You, I did. Yeah, you suffered in the end. Mentally unstable. My kids didn't want to know me. You know, that, how can that be normal? That can't be right. So that's why I realized when Jesse Jackson was speaking, he's saying, we have to become better parents. Mm. He doesn't, he didn't say racism is, is doesn't exist. He said it exists. Mm. But if you're a better parent, we can fight through. Now, how does your, your, uh, you have your own gangland, right? Mm. Gangsland. So, gangsland. How does that help the younger generation? So what key role do you play part in terms of um, changing people's mindsets? 
Well, I, I run a program called Inspire Me, which, which stands for Inspire, Motivate and Equip. Okay. And basically, I use the psychological approach, basically what gang members use and what J the Jamaicans use. Yeah. And my approach is based on um, building their mental capacity because the problem with young men is that we're weak mentally. And the reason why we're weak, weak mentally, because our parents were weak mentally. And so when you don't get no schooling, you get no, no one to teach you how to st be strong mentally. In other words, who are you? What do you stand for? What's your principles? Where do you see yourself going? What do you think's holding you back? Are you going to be... So if when you speak to somebody in my age group, okay, and I, I know this is not going to sound good, but most black men, most black men in my age group are unemployed. Most black men in my age group don't own their own property. Most black men live in a woman's house. Most black men will tell you the reason why he's unemployed is because the white man stops him. So they've got this mentality, the program, right. they're programmed. They've, they've got this mentality and it's called a defeatist attitude. And we think by using racism justifies why we're unemployed, mm. justifies why we don't have our own properties. It doesn't. And this is why I always say to people, racism is bad. And I totally get it. And I write about racism all the time. But the one thing I've learned is that when I'm mentoring a young person, I always get them to understand you are the one that can make your life easy or you can make your life tough. If you want to make your life tough, then hang out with knuckleheads mm. like what I did. Or if you want to make your life easy, hang out with people that will push you to go further. You understand? And so I, my mentoring program is, is using that psychology approach, which is, um, I, I believe in talking therapy, which is CBT, cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapeutic approach, which is all about the mind and getting the mind right. Because look, one thing I learned with Jesse Jackson, when I came back to England, I never held a gun again, ever. He didn't say to me, don't carry a gun. He got into my head and said, how much white man can you kill before you end up doing 30 years? <laughs> simple as that. It was that simple. Wow. How much white man can you kill? That's when I realized he's right. Mm. How much white man can I kill? I shoot one white man, I'm going to jail. Mm. Shoot another one, you're staying in jail. Yeah. That is a no brainer. Like that's what he's, and th then he said to me, okay, let's say you don't shoot a white man. And he'll say like, you sell drugs, yeah? And then somebody comes to rob you of your drugs, so you've got to shoot the person because they come to rob you. You kill the person. That's 15, that's 20 years. All for nothing. All for nothing. So what he's saying is, if you shoot somebody because you, they don't like, you don't like them because they're white, or you shoot a gang member, either which way, you lose. Mm. So when a man's putting like that to you, you're realising, rah, this brother is right. No matter what, you, you're going to lose. So the best thing to do is to help others. So that's that, what you're doing right yeah. now. Yeah. So he said to me, help, help, get yourself educated, believe in God, which is what I do. You understand? Go back to university, get that degree, get that paper and help the brothers on the road and show them that if you can do it, so mm -hmm. can they. So that's what, that's why I believe in helping young men in all parts of the world. So when I go to Jamaica, I help, I deal with gang members. So there's two gangs out there called one called one order. The other one called Klangsman. Yeah. Um, 
I engage with them. When I go to America, I, I, I engage with the gangs in the Bronx, Brooklyn, Washington, DC, and Boston. Because I don't look at, I look at every opportunity, like what you, because you do your thing, you go around the world. When I go on anywhere, I go specifically to help gang members. So even on holiday, I'm, I'm talking to gang members, even on holiday, even though it gets on my kids' nerves and my wife's nerves because you give it a rest. But even on holiday, so for me, the, uh, the, the life I've led and the people that's motivated me, you know, the Bernie Grants, the Diane Abbotts, the Jesse Jacksons, um, the, the Les Isaacs, uh, that, you know, those kind of people that's kind of worked with me and, and helped me, has said one thing, help people. Help the young people get to a place where you didn't get to yourself but you can help them to get there because of your experience and knowledge that you have. That shows that you've had to go through racial discrimination, being stopped and searched, being punched by police officers to get to where now. It, it shows that you're um, that you're inspiring because you've inspired other people through your journey and you had to experience life in a different way. I mean, no one deserves the way you've been treated, but at least you, you've got somewhere and now you're saying to the youth, them, look, I've been through this. Maybe your parents have been through this. There's no need to be part of a gang. I'm just going to ask you to, uh, three more questions. Yeah, go Do ahead. you think um, gang members should get a longer sentence for uh, um, luring minors to do certain gang activities? That's a difficult one because prison actually hasn't proven rehabilitation works. Um, um, for those who don't know me, I am now being contracted by the MOJ, which is the Ministry of Justice, um, department to go into more prisons because they love the work that um, inspire me program. So in terms of rehabilitation, I am not sure because right now in the prisons, the rehabilitation isn't good. So when a young man goes in prison, they actually come out worse. So I am not sure if longer sentences, I think what needs to happen is that you need more of what I do in those prisons so that the time they're in the prison, they're getting to engage with somebody like me who can take them on another level because that's the problem. The problem in prisons, they don't employ people like me. They employ people that don't understand street gangs and, and it's mainly white people. Yeah. And unfortunately, this sounds really bad, in the South of England, the prison is overrun with black kids. Overrun, literally overrun. You would, you would have thought when you go into the prisons in the south of England that you're in the Caribbean somewhere. Yeah. Because there's so many young <laughs> oh, black... You would have thought you're in the Caribbean somewhere. Yeah, because there's so many black kids in prison. So many African boys are in prison. We've got... I went into Felton um, recently. There's eight kids that I spoke to who are on murder charges. Wow. They're 15. And their dads are pastors. So this affects everyone. And this is why I say to people, I am not sure if the modern day slavery act of 2015 is going to make a difference. In fact, I find it a bit of a cheat to use that word modern day slavery act because England invented slavery and never compensated us for what they've done to us. So when they start telling me about, let's use the word modern day slavery act, because these guys are grooming these children, I'm reluctant to use such words because really you haven't even apologized for your part in slavery, but you want us to use this word against young gang members. So in terms of the, the trafficking laws and the, the laws and a modern day slavery, I am not quite sure if that's 
if that's going to make a single ounce of difference, unless you've got more people like me in the prisons to mm. rehabilitate them. Someone mindset. that understands how the system yeah. works and that. One more last question. Um, any inspiring words for the youth that are watching this now? What would you say to them? I will say this. One, you don't really have an excuse why you're not successful. Now, I know some of you are growing up without your dads. I know that. Quite a large percentage of us. I know some of you may have a mum that is not quite there because she's struggling. But what we have in England, we don't, I did not never have. We, When we were young, there was no such thing as a computer, no laptop, no mobile phone, no internet, nothing like that. You have that. You have an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm not going to allow my dad's rejection because he didn't like me or the way my mum is or because the white man don't like us. Don't allow that to determine your future. What we have to do as black people, and not just black people, white people from poor areas, Asians, um, all young people, we have to start looking at our, where we're at is not where we're going to go. Mm. And we've got to start pressing and we don't press enough. And we've got to start unifying. That means working together more. We need to stop bad mouthing the next black person or the next Asian man, because they happen to be more successful than you. If, uh, if, a, per if a young person is successful, find out how they've done it so that you can achieve so it. You, can you don't need to red eye them. You don't need to bad mouth them. Yeah. And I think if we're going to talk about um, how do we inspire the next generation, unfortunately, it's going to be difficult because there's not enough men like me. And that's the truth. I'm not bigging up myself in any shape, way or form, but there's just not enough like me. And so what happens is young people are left to looking at other young people. And that sometimes can be kind of off-putting because if that young person makes a mistake or slips, we kind of tread all over them. So for me, one, we need more older guys doing better. Leaders. Like me, yeah. I'm a consultant. I, I get paid good money. Um, I travel the world, maybe not as a black man traveler like he does. <laughs> yeah. No one travels like my man. Yeah. But when I do get an opportunity, I go. Um, I think even now, um, the police have called me to train their officers. And that's a bit of a difference. The police have called you the to train The police officers. have called me to train their officers. <laughs> wow. So that's a turnaround from a guy that used to fight police officers. Yeah, and I was working with them. And now I'm working to help them to be better. Because one of the things I've learned is that it's no point me complaining about racism if I don't show them how to change that. And so one of the things I'm doing is getting them to understand about black people, about how we think and about what we do so that they can stop stereotyping us so that's not a bad thing i'm i mean it's gonna it's not gonna change it overnight yeah. we're looking at at least five six years from now you're gonna see the significance of what i'm doing in about five or six years so i think for me it's about us as young people despite it doesn't matter what color you are not allowing our circumstances to determine our future. We've got to, we've got to use the technology we have. We've got to use um, our creative way. And one of the things we have to start doing is that your generation, when you become fathers, you've got to do differently what parents did in the past. You've got to start showing these kids mad love because the only way you're going to stop your child from ever wanting to be on the road 
is if you and your child have a relationship where your child don't feel that he can't talk to you. Mm. He can't reason with you. You're unreasonable. We've got to start doing things we may not want to do. Like um, my, your, your, my boy might want to go cinema. Okay. I may not want to watch what he wants to watch, but hear what? Would I not rather be at the cinema with him than have him hanging out with some unsavory character because dad didn't want to spend, stopped what he was doing. So we've got to make ourselves more available to our children. So I think if we're looking at change, the change has to start with parenting. Thank you very much. You've, um, you've given me and the audience um, a very inspiring interview. Um, I wish you all the success. And hopefully um, in the near future, I will, I'll be interested to work with you actually, because in terms of uh, you've traveled as well, and you've gone to certain neighbourhoods that a a fellow person of colour from inner city London wouldn't go, such as Jamaica, mm. the, the neighbourhoods in Jamaica, the neighbourhoods in Bronx, in Philadelphia, in Washington, D.C. And I wouldn't mind to actually go there and maybe not interview the people, mm. but actually show people how people live in a different perspective in life. Oh, that would be brilliant. And actually what you're doing is very inspiring. And um, yeah, man, I hope, I wish you a lot of success. Mm. Guys, I will I will put his um, social media platforms in the in the descriptions. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. It's man, that black man. Take care. Bye.